Yacht Rock Podcast out of the main. We are the Yacht Rock Podcast out of the main. We are. Yeah. We are your co-hosts and co-captains. We are. I'm Tom and you are? I are uh, John. And uh, we are the children. Yes, we are the future. Yep. Uh, we are the world. We are the ones. Never mind. Yeah, we're going to make a brighter day today. So let's start living. Let's start. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so people got to be wondering, why is a Yacht Rock podcast doing an episode on We Are the World? I know the answer to that one. Okay, what is it? Because I know that it could not have happened without the world that we know of as Yacht Rock. Ooh, interesting. It could not have happened. Ooh, do you want to explore that premise right away? Or come yeah, back real to quick. It? All, All right. right, all right. Producer, Quincy Jones, yes. got some yacht cred, right? Yep. Songwriters, Michael Jackson, he's got some yacht cred. Yes. Lionel Richie. He Certified. Has, he has some certain Yacht Rock cred. The rhythm section that laid it down was a certain John Robinson JR. on drums. We had a certain Greg Fillingaines on piano and a certain Lewis Johnson on bass. So the entire core of this song is yacht personnel. Yes. The personnel is so yachty. We're going to come back to this, but let me just throw a couple other names out okay. there in case people are still wondering. Okay. We've got I'm El sure Oh, yeah. Kenny Loggins. He was there. Daryl Hall, mm-hmm. not always yachty, <laughs> but uh, here's one that's and but certified Steve Perry, right, uh, and more. So uh, we got yachty personnel, yachty yes. production, yachty time frame, right. Let's dive in at the right end. Ooh, ding! At the right end of the yachty time frame. Yes, right? yeah. So, um, it, it, what got me hooked into it was. I think it was um, some members of the Facebook group, the Yacht Rock Facebook group, were maybe it was even listener me that had seen it mm-hmm. and showed a clip and it drew me in. And you said you watched it and you're like, you got to watch this thing. It's compelling. Yeah. Yeah. And what we're talking about is this full documentary that came out, what, a few years after this was done. Yeah, it was narrated or hosted by Jane Fonda. Yep. And, but it, it kept showing up in my uh, recommended YouTube videos so yeah. at one point i just you know had a little extra time on my hands i said well let's see what it's like yeah well and I, was, I couldn't believe how great it was i know and but it's i mean we should i don't know warn people's the right word uh just let people know it's it's not like a modern day documentary it was made way back when so like the, the was, graphics but, are super but that's cheesy. part of it yeah that, that's part of what makes this thing so amazing you know my my takeaway of it and i know i'm probably jumping off of where you were headed my takeaway from it with everything that factors in this is probably the single greatest studio recording accomplishment there's ever been. Ooh. When you factor in the number of people and the star power, yep. the obstacles that they had to work against, I mean, because of the fact that they had to do this overnight, mm-hmm. because earlier that day was the American Music Awards, and all of these stars were at the American Music Awards, which also coincidentally you know of course brought them to la and made them available right but they had to work around that you had the idea that it as you say about this documentary that was being filmed while they were doing this recording so you're filling this studio not just with all of these stars their entourages or handlers or whoever plus you've got to have a film crew you've got to stage this whole thing you need makeup artists for all of these people wow, yeah. you've got to have hundreds of people hanging around at this and the goal was to record a great song which they did but imagine the distractions and just the fact that they came out with this song that i think is absolutely brilliant i know people maybe have grown tired of it i think it's absolute perfection and to think that they pulled it off like that yeah. is 
that's what makes it the greatest accomplishment ever. Well, two things to add to that is my memory was not entirely accurate. My memory was that hmm, the imagine. song. Yeah. <laughs> well, it only gets better with age. Though, <laughs> True. Because I now I remember. Yeah. That. Uh, so anyway, my memory was that this was somewhat inspired or influenced, or maybe I thought they were copying the um, Do They Know It's Christmas by Band-Aid. That's true. Right. And it is true. It but is true. I didn't realize that it was only seven weeks after Do They Know It's Christmas was released. I didn't realize it was that quick either. Like, it was right on the heels. And it was Harry Belafonte that was inspired and brought the idea over yeah. to, so I he guess, saw Quincy it. He's like, whoever. we got to do this yeah. for us. And he, I think he, he got the money, the executive, the suits to say, okay, let's pull, pull this all together. Yeah. So that was interesting. I also did not know that the song was literally written the day before it was recorded. Back to your amazing, yeah. right? So they had the idea. They booked the session. <laughs> the day before they write it too, yeah. and I think it's uh, Lionel. Lionel kind of had a rough thing going, I guess, yep. and then kind of handed it off to Michael, and they come back like the next day, and Michael's got the whole thing flushed out. Yes, kinda. so Michael did not go to the AMAs because right. he spent the night fr- doing the rough vocal and yeah, putting all the guide parts down for everybody. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So it, it opens with some of that backdrop, and then we find out. I learned that. Again, it was written the day before, and you see a small session the night before, which is Quincy, yeah, Michael, Lionel, and Stevie Wonder, and they're doing sort of the arranging. So I feel like that yeah. those I know the only t- two of those get the writing credit, but those four were yeah. like the brains behind all of this. Well, one one correction I will make going back that the song had sort of been written uh, a little bit back, but in terms of the arranging and all that stuff, that was what was happening the there before. Because what they did a while back when they wrote it, they then made out uh, these cassettes for everybody, for all the performers, and that would have had their parts like highlighted on it or whatever. But all these people got mailed a cassette and it actually came with a letter that said, do not share this with anybody because, mm. uh, you know, if this gets out, blah, 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 well, you can imagine. So they were warned not to, but they all had these cassettes ahead of time where they had a rough framework of what the song was, but it wasn't like you say till the day before that there they are with Phil and Gaines and Stevie Wonder and really putting the thing in shape. Because supposedly Stevie Wonder, the other thing that they were fighting against, supposedly Stevie Wonder was supposed to be part of the writing crew, but he was busy working on music for The Lady in Red. So he wasn't available when they were doing the original writing sessions. Interesting. All kinds of different obstacles. And even Quincy had to work around his schedule. He had to get days off from working on music for The Color Purple. Hmm. So, you know, (laughs) a lot of juggling went on to make this happen. Yes, absolutely. And um, I just wanted to dive in a little bit back to the Yacht Rock aspect yeah, of things. Okay. Because you said how much you love the song. Mm-hmm. Um, I do. I, I do think it's, obviously, it's a well-written song. I don't need to like give accolades to Quincy Jones and Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson. But the song never stood out to me as this like musical masterpiece in terms of performance and recording. But... In other words, put it another way. I'll tell you why it should, but go ahead. Okay, but here's what, in my mind, I hear the song, I'm like, you don't need J.R. Robinson, and you don't need Louis Johnson to pull that off. No, that's true. But they got that, and I wanted to provide a little bit of a clip for Well, they were Quincy's guys, man. Quincy's guys, it's like, I could count on all these guys. Yeah. But check out what Louis Johnson was doing just to keep himself warm, which is in the documentary. He's just playing a little of this. And then he decides to warm up with his buddy, 
J.R. Robinson. Yeah. And then you hear this coming from the booth. Yeah, and what I couldn't get over from that is that's what it sounded like raw in the room. I mean, it, it, it's just a clanky, cruddy-sounding drum kit. But then when you compare that to what they do once they record it properly and mix it properly and put it on the record, it is so night and day different. Yes, it is. Unbelievable. So what were you going to say why you were going to either enlighten me or correct well, me uh, like you often it, do? It's, I guess from a songwriting perspective, I don't have anything to add. It's more when we get to later on, how they turned this song into, the way they divvied up the parts, and I guess we'll get to that later. I think there is an absolute brilliance in the way that they decided who was going to sing what. They're all getting very short little segments to sing, but the mastery is in not just how each person is able to shine in their small uh, plot that they're given, but also how you put one up against another, how these different blends and or juxtapositions set each other off. And it's just, it's just amazing. And we'll get to that as we go down sort of the chronology of it. Are you talking about the vocals? Yes. The, the, the leads? Lead. Yes. Because yeah. um, I kind of had a somewhat of a prelude note on that. Yeah. We mentioned some of the Yachty personnel earlier. I forgot to mention James Ingram. Mm-hmm. And he's chosen, uh, so what they do is they bring everyone in to sing the choruses and what would be called the chorus, right? right. Just the backing vocals. And then they're going to divvy up parts for right. individuals to solo. And James Ingram is featured prominently in this documentary, which in hindsight doesn't seem to add up. But I bet at the time, maybe you know, he had to be like Quincy's next protege, right? Because he was recording albums with him and mm -hmm. all mm -hmm. of that. It never really, in my mind... Uh, panned out that way. Like, I don't right. think James Ingram got as big as they thought he was going to be at I the time. I think that's right. Yeah. I think that's right. He was certainly great and had a, a run, a short run of massive hits, but it wasn't like he became like the next Luther Vandross or Al Jarreau or something where it was album after album after album. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think yeah. they thought he was. Because look at the yeah. stars that are in yeah. this room. It's incredible. But there's also like Huey Lewis and then the news is there too. So even like the drummer and the bass player are there as part of the chorus. So it's amazing the the wide range of people that were invited. Well, you know who, um, real quick, I'm a little bit jumping all over the board, but two things that were interesting, factoids. Okay. Prince was not there. That's right. He was invited. Yes, he was. But do you remember what happened or did you read into what happened? I did and I don't recall it at this moment. Well, apparently yeah. his... Uh, bodyguards got into something of a dust up at the ah, AMA. That's what it was. So he had to go bail, to them, bail out them out of jail. Out of jail. That's yeah. right. And then there is some uh, consternation, or maybe some, uh, shall we say, question as to why Madonna wasn't there because mm -hmm. she was like the biggest thing at the time. Yeah. And apparently, depending on who you ask, she wanted to be there. Um, Michael Jackson invited her to be there, but her management advised her to decline because she would have to cancel dates on her Virgin tour. Okay. Um, other people say she wasn't welcome because of her reputation and that Ooh. it might conflict with the wholesomeness of the cause. So hmm. leave that where it is, but I yeah, just thought that was no interesting. Yeah. What's up? No comment. <laughs> All right. That is a comment though, in a lot yeah, of ways. It is. And then last thing, um, Dan Aykroyd's there. <laughs> watch, the, watch well, the thing. Blues Brothers. Yeah. Right? So apparently he was taking a meeting in this in the same building. Oh, okay. But 
it, he was at the wrong building. Oh, <laughs> he, he was supposed to meet like an agent or something or money manager or something. And he's, they're like, he's not here. This, he doesn't even work here. So, <laughs> so like, what's going on down yeah. the hall? I know those guys. I know a couple of them. <laughs> so he checks in and he's actually in the song singing in the chorus. I don't know if he actually yeah. made the cut. Why but, not? Yeah. Blues Brothers, like I say. Right. Yeah, he was a, yeah, that's right. he was a performing <laughs> artist. Yes, right. Anyways. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I had an interesting takeaway if we're going to get into sort of the making of aspect of it. One thing that caught my attention as I'm watching this was when they're recording the, the choir, so to speak, yeah. that we hear the choir and that's kind of your typical choir, three, four part harmony on these big choruses and all that stuff. But now I get to see how Quincy did it, where he had this choir, maybe it was 30 or 40 people in it. Mm-hmm. And as you can hear in this this cut I'm going to play, is that he had them sing everything in unison. So they would sing this one part in unison, then they'd go back and do the next harmony, all 40 people singing in unison. It wasn't like they were singing and harmonizing together. They were reading the individual lines off their music. So check this out. There it is, you have 40 track unison or whatever, and uh, they would go and lay down the next part and the next part, which is, uh, I found that interesting. I did too. I thought it was really interesting. The other thing too, just just to kind of step back or go back to something that you mentioned earlier, is they're in one big room. Yeah. And they're a handful of mics. Yeah. Right. Not everyone's mic'd up. Not everyone's in their own booth. They're all right. in the same all room. All in one big room. And so as they go around after they record the chorus, we'll get to the, the leads in a minute because we want to play yeah. some of that. Just picture four or five people standing next to a mic, and then when it's your turn, you have to step up, and somebody has to get out of the way. Yeah. And then you have to get out of the way to let that person step when up. When they did the leads. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. But, but when they're doing the choir, it's funny. Not everybody even has headphones on. They're just you know, using what they're hearing other people sing and they're singing along and they're just holding their headphones in their hand, which first of all, it's, it's funny that they would do it that way, but then you can hear all the bleed coming out of the headphones, the backing track bleeding through it. I it's just surprised that they would allow it to be done that way. And it, you know, there's probably a whole lot of residual noise in those choir tracks on the recording, but you never hear it in the right, final exactly. mix. But it's just, you know, how do you, with 40 people kind of swinging and swaying back and forth while they're singing, you're going to have this noise. And, you know, you never hear any of that stuff. No, but you don't. there was that moment, though, that I thought was so um, compelling was when they broke into the sort of tribute for Harry Belafonte. And... They just kind of, before the choir broke up, they started this whole Deo thing, and it built into a quite a cacophony of Al Jarreau kind of leading, giving the lead lines, and everyone else doing the answers of the daylight come and we want to go home. Check this out. Hey, I'm 
And I, you know, if they had recorded that, maybe they did have tape running, but it made me think if they could have recorded that, been at the ready, had the tape rolling, I think they could have made something out of just that and had a huge hit. I almost hear like a um, Barbara Ann from the Beach Boys with mm. all the hooting and how and they're laughing and they're clanking ashtrays, you know, from that party album. And it's so loose and it's so fun that I could hear that if that was released as a two and a half, three minute single, they could have had a hit. Well, was there anything on the B-side, you know? That would have been a cool B-side. I think it was a Quincy uh, instrumental on the B-side. Okay. Depending on what country, though, I think there were different B-sides. Gotcha. Let's go back to some Yachty personnel. I told you there would be more. Okay. Um, kind of related to what we're talking about in terms of recording. Do you know who the engineer was? Was it Bruce Swedeen? Umberto? Oh, Umberto Gatica. Yes. 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 So that's a pretty Yachty mixer. Again, Big time. it's Quincy handpicking the best of the best for this, right? Yep. Yep. Um, okay. So going back to... Um, the recording of this. Do you yeah. want to move on to some of the, the... Yeah, I think that the magic lies in the ordering of the vocals. And uh, I guess for the most part, Quincy allowed Lionel and... Uh, Quincy had an assistant named Tom Baylor, and apparently that was one of his things was vocal arranging. And he was a big help. And uh, as I said, this is ultimately where the magic happens. You get these contrasting of styles. You get a different range. A low range goes up against a high range. Uh, sometimes they're call and response. Sometimes that they're... Um, harmonizing with each other. That is where you get the chills in this, where you go mm. from one person that's maybe really soft and then the gruff comes in. I mean, I think of we're coming, um, we got verse two here that you've got, talk about contrast. You got Dion Warwick hmm. followed by Willie Nelson and they harmonize together. Which works. Yeah. Then there's Al Jarreau in there. And I don't think this is the final cut that I'm going to play, but then Bruce comes on at the end. And let me play this for you. Won't you send them your heart So they know that someone cares And their lives will be stronger and free As God has shown us By turning stone to bread And so we all must lend a helping hand We are the world I am no big fan of Bruce, no and, I, and, and I don't find him a compelling singer, but every single time he comes in there, I get the chill up the back, and it's because of what is before it, that suddenly it's all nice, it's all nice, and you need that just, you need that thing, that rock and roll thing, and it's the perfect elixir in that moment. Yeah. Agreed. And even, I can't remember if it's right before or right after that, there's the smooth sound of Kenny Rogers, which, by the way, dips a toe on the Yeah, let's not very... forget how how connected he was, right. not only to the yacht circuit, but just the pop circuit in general. For a guy who's kind of thought of as more of a country guy, and probably thought of as certainly older than a lot of the younger artists there. But man, because he actually used his studio as the writing studio. Oh, I did not know yeah, that. Yeah, he offered up his studio for that part of it. It's a so, factoid. Yeah. All right, well, let's work our way around the circle. Okay. And this might not be in order, but the next note I had that stuck out at me was the sort of juxtaposition and the alliance between Kenny Loggins yeah. and Steve Perry, who yeah. we had just talked to Trisha Bowden the other day about High Adventure. Yes. And they that album leads off with those two. I'm thinking, I wonder how closely timed that was. Yeah, I never looked that up. And but, then it goes into Daryl Hall. Daryl Hall. Those so that's three the three together. together, working around one microphone on this segment. Yep. Well, let's play a little of that. We are the ones to make a brighter day. So let's start 
So I'm going to play a few in a row here of Steve Perry because my takeaway on that was each time Steve Perry offered up something completely different. And every time, to me, it's magic. But I'm going to hit you a few of those right in a row so you can hear the diversity of what he offered. These are the ones that did not make the final cut. I felt more or less Kenny before him and then Daryl after him kind of had a theme and they stuck to it. Yeah, Daryl felt like he was trying too hard. If I, you ask well, me. <laughs> you, no comment. No Can we go good. back to that? Good. Uh, uh, but yeah, those two guys, they had in their head what they wanted to do. And of course, yes. they're both masters at doing it. But the improv came from Steve in the middle. Yeah, and if cool. you see in the video, he's got like his hands in his pockets and he just kind of saunters up to the microphone each time it's his turn. He's just so laid back. And I don't know if it was ego or confidence or what. He just looked like, you know, I could do this a hundred times and give you a hundred different things. He just had so much control, but also so many ideas musically in his head. I mean, this would have been Steve Perry at his probably creative peak. So, yeah. Well, let's segue to the next significant triad because the same thing happens there. Yeah. We've got... Uh, the Interesting pairing, not pairing, what's a threeing? I don't know what that word is. Huey Lewis. Yep. Cindy Lauper. Right. And Kim Carnes. And Kim Carnes. But even Michael Jackson before that. So Michael the Jackson. The bridge starts segue. with Michael yeah. Jackson. Yeah. Then it's the, those three. And uh, that one, boy, that took a lot of work yep. for them to get what they wanted. Part um, of it was they had introduced almost on the spot a harmony that they wanted they did. to put in there and then have Cindy sing over. All so, three of them were nailing their parts individually. With one minor exception. They, they, well, before the, uh, before the harmony thing, when right. they were doing yes. their individual things, all three just sounded great. And I think they said, well, we can get just a little more out of this. So what if we harmonize that last line between Kim Carnes and Huey Lewis and then let Cindy go over the top of it? And Huey could not find the note. Is that what you're singing? That's what you're singing? Together as But what was interesting is what you said about Steve Perry is also true of Cindy Lauper. She comes in with this sort of like overline. Mm-hmm. Should we play a few of those? Listen to how many times or how many different ways Cindy addresses yeah. that particular.
And then Huey even says, I sang a few of those out of tune for you guys just to keep you honest or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I sang a couple of them out of tune just to see if anybody would notice. <laughs> but it wasn't until the very end of this whole sequence, and you could see Lionel, is he's the one that's out on the floor sort of coaching everybody along, the liaison between that and the people in the booth. And he he knows he's gotten down this road of this harmony thing. And I think he still feels like it's there somewhere. I don't get the impression that he's trying to work his way out of it because he doesn't want to embarrass Huey. You know, Huey's mm. all you know into it. He's trying. There's like some coaching going on from the guys in the background that have already sang. So like Kenny Loggins and Steve Perry and Daryl Hall are kind of, you can't exactly hear what they're saying, but they're obviously saying, what about this? What about that? And then finally, Lionel comes up with this idea. How about we have Huey switch notes and go up to this note and then we suddenly get, it's like, almost like he says, let's just try this. One more take. Well, one I more think take. It was, it's the one where Kim Carnes, he says, you stay on your note. Yes. Right. You keep the note, and we'll have Huey kind of bend so down. So now they're juggling the notes, and he says, just, just try it one more time. And it's almost like this is a last disc effort, and it's just boom. It's gold. Here yeah, it where were we? I can't see. I can't see. just hit it. When we go, stay together as one. But if you just believe There's no way we can fall When we stand together as Yeah, and, and any lopper on that. Jeez, that's Louise. one. Where, that was her best take too. That was the, the wow, 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 wow. Oh, oh, I won't do the rest. Don't worry. Yeah. And then that brings. <laughs> I don't even know if we should cover this out of uh, deference to. I think the, we can cover it respectfully because I think this this kind of connects to Huey. Because yeah. the one observation I had about Huey is how often was Huey in his career expected to harmonize. To someone else's lead. He's the lead guy, has mm-hmm. been the leader of the, his band forever, and everyone harmonizes around him. It's a whole different thing when you're asked to now find a, a, a harmony underneath somebody else. And so you're taking somebody out of their element. Yes. This is a case of somebody being as far out of their element as they could possibly be. That someone being? Bob Dylan. <laughs> yeah, so he's got a thing, right? Bob Dylan wow, has a thing. just wow. Wow, just wow. <laughs> and uh, they could have cut a good four minutes out of this segment. They, and it they still spent too enough. much time on it, yeah. 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 But it's kind of like watching a puppy get kicked. But um, this is the guy who's used to running the show. Mm-hmm. He's used to not necessarily even having to, quote, sing as we think of singing. Right. You know, it's it's kind of a tonal talk. spoken word. Yep. And now suddenly he's put into this pop music huge anthem and expected to to sing, and he just doesn't. He doesn't get it. He can't hear the notes. He has no idea what to do. Right. And I understand it. I'm not being critical of him, other than it was a case where he was so completely out of his element. But Quincy knew he needed these contrasting elements. Yes. And he had to get this in there somehow because in the final mix, when you hear it, the Dylan part works, works. because yes. of what's around it. It does. And again, not a huge Bob Dylan fan either, but I, I wrote, why is he even concerned with what the notes are? <laughs> I, 
True. True. Well, what's so endearing though about Bob in this is that a he um, he's willing to take critique. He even defers to Stevie Wonder. Says Stevie, help me with this part. Yeah. He. He knew it wasn't good. He, he knew it tell. wasn't good, and he wasn't afraid to admit it. Right. Quincy was going to let him off the hook more than once, and mm-hmm. he's like, no, 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 man, I can do it. I yeah. can do it. Yep. And then at the end, Quincy's like, obviously, he's got enough. He's got to find something out of this that he can work yeah, with. he did. And Bob's like, and Quincy's, you know, being super nice. He's like, it's great. Bob's great, man. And he's like, no, no it wasn't. But <laughs> all right. <laughs> but all right. That's what you want. <laughs> <laughs> so that was cool. I went from like, oh, my God, don't include this to like really liking Bob Dylan after that. There- Choice we're making. We saving our own lives. It's true, we make a better day. Just you and me. We are the world. We are the children. <sighs> there was a segment that they played, and you got to hear this though, because you mentioned James Ingram earlier. There was some, uh, he had the opportunity later on in the song to come back and add some ad libs for the the big play out at the end. And they have a few of those in isolation. You've got to hear James Ingram just spitting all over the house with this. Check this out. We are the ones that make a brown day. So let's not give in. Spit flying everywhere. And then there's Stevie Wonder and his ad-libs. Now hear these. That's just we're making. We're saving our own lives. It's true we make a better day for you and me. I messed up. I messed up. I messed up. Hey, everybody in the audience, I messed up. Well, uh, while we're at it, let's hear some of Ray Charles's. <laughs> and he's dancing around too. We're talking yeah. about noise in the recording. He's sh- he's doing like the yeah, the shoe shoe or something. Yeah, exactly. He's, well, he's got like uh, hard heels. I think you can yeah. really hear him. Yeah, and he's on a hard floor too. That's kind of odd. But Quincy calls him a one take, uh, whatever. Well, like, it's almost like you, you don't tell Ray Charles what to do when you're going to do soul ad libs because he essentially invented it. Right. You know. Yeah. Exactly. It's like telling William Shatner how to read a script like William Shatner's supposed to. You know. <laughs> I think he knows. So, yeah. I mean, we only played a slice of what this is. I would recommend... It's only an hour long. Go watch it. Mm-hmm. I think seeing it and seeing these people interact, I think, is part of the fun. There's a lot more education than what we covered. Yeah, there's a lot going on in the background that you can see, and there's faces you'll recognize that we haven't even been able to cover. It's just seeing like the choir session and seeing like Anita Pointer standing next to Cindy Lauper or Diana Ross or, you know, it's just seeing all these people together in their prime, working on this, checking their egos at the door, so to speak. Um, I'm just enthralled with, and, and just watching how they put this together, how they had these people spread around the room with mics, as you were saying, and they had to lean in for their part. It was kind of old school in that way, but I don't know if there was a better way to do it, but, I, I was just infatuated with how they pulled this off with all that was going on. Yep, absolutely. And nobody got paid, so put their egos at the door, and they, you know, put their bank account at the door too. Nobody got. And this paid. lasted until like eight a.m. They were there all night, all overnight, night. after they, having been at the AMAs. They also had to squeeze in a photo shoot during yeah. this yeah. at like two thirty in the morning. So that's just incredible. So 
it debuts on Good Friday morning. Yes. Which is interesting. Uh, we just passed Good Friday, as a matter of fact. And over 8,000 stations played the song at the exact same time for the launch. Yeah. I mean, I, and then a year I, later, they revisited it. Yeah. It happened again a year later. Same time on a Good Friday morning? Yeah, or? Good Friday, and it was it was like 6,000 stations. You know, 2,000 of them were done with it, apparently. Sold more than 20 million copies. It's the eighth best-selling physical single of man, all time. man. So yeah. they raised a few bucks, man. <sighs> on the heels of what Band-Aid did, which they raised a few bucks themselves. This is a far superior song to Do They Know It's Christmas, in my opinion. It's interesting because I, I wouldn't say, I don't know that I agree. All right. But not, I mean, I would defer to your expertise in terms well, it's of not production and all that it's stuff. an opinion. Personal thing. taste, yeah. I like yeah. the other one better. But uh, but interesting side note, too, is Bob Geldof was at the session. Yeah, he kind of gave him a pep talk before. Gives him a speech yeah. at the beginning. Yep. yep. Uh, that was interesting. It was a good well. honor to, that they extended to him that they weren't just going to steal his idea and not have him be involved. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. So, and really credit to Bob Geldof, whatever you think of him or that song or whatever, he took the initiative to do something about, you know, a world problem and they had an impact. Yeah. And if you say you like um, the Band-Aid thing, the Band-Aid thing was really big. Um, and if it is the impetus for this, and we're talking two of the most essential songs of the 80s because of the impact and the the star power and all that stuff. And Bob Geldof was at the heart of both of them. So you got to give him yep. the credit on that. Yep. And then, am I, is my memory correct? Going back to my memory, <clears throat> wasn't there then, that's what friends are for? Wasn't that to raise money for AIDS research? That was. I think that's so right. So a similar idea. That sounds right. So yeah, we didn't have nearly as many people, but it was a... Uh, yeah. yeah. Remember Dion Warwick and Stevie Wonder? Right, maybe? right. So, I think James Ingram may have been part of that one, too. Or was it Peebo Bryson? I'm trying to remember now. Well, anyway. now your memory's failing you. <clears throat> well, you caught me off guard. All right. Well, what else you got on this before we... Um, I had uh, something that I took. You know how, how much I love rock critics. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it, it there was a lot of interesting, different takes on this, you know. Uh, and I guess in my defense of rock critics, they're there in a, they're caught in a snapshot of time. We have the ability to look at what they wrote 30 years down the lit, you know, time, 40 years down the time. And we can see all the legacy and all the things and kind of assess it in that way where they're assessing it in the moment before we they even know what the impact's going to be. So with a grain of salt, but this critic, which I shall not name, uh, says, We Are the World says less about Ethiopia than it does about Pepsi. The word choice was his problem because there's a choice we're making. Because at the time, Pepsi was running a campaign called Choice of a New Generation. Mm -hmm. So now back to the quote. He says, the true result will likely be less that certain Ethiopian individuals will live, or anyway, live a little bit longer than they otherwise would have. Then Pepsi will get the catchphrase of its advertising campaign sung for free by Ray Charles, Stevie Wonder, Bruce Springsteen, and all the rest. <laughs> Is there any cynicism in that? No. Could wow. you be more cynical? I well, think that, uh, yeah, somebody you know what it on his you know what he's. But, uh, well, he nailed it, though. I mean, that's what I remember from this is the whole Pepsi tie-in. <laughs> I'm sure. That was my entire takeaway. I mean, red, white, and blue. I yeah. mean, it's come on. Right on. All mm. right. Well, again, go watch it. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, you'll learn a lot. You'll be entertained. You'll be taken down memory lane. So. All right. Before we get into our uh, lightning round. Okay. 
shall we let people know that there is a new supersonic smash-up six-pack? There is. And uh, I don't know if we have any prizes this time other we than bragging rights. We do have a rights. prize. Okay, do you want to say what that is first? Yeah, well, I'm going to stick with a the theme, and whoever correctly guesses these songs, which you'll just tee up in a second, yep. uh, we will make a donation in their name to impact, or I'm sorry, demand impact. There you go. Demand hyphen impact.org is where you can learn all about this charity. Um, we had the organizer and uh, the producer of a record. They put together a star studded yacht, Rocky type of lineup, put out some new music from the likes of Bill Champlin, Richard Page, Michael yep. McDonald, uh, Vernon Porter was the producer. Vernon Kenny Porter and TJ George was the organizer. And you could, that episode can, you can look that up if you miss that one. And, and Tristan Bowden was the drummer. Yep. And so, so really great cause. They're raising money for victims of opioid abuse. Right. So, you get this correct, we will make a, not only a donation in your name to support this cause, but as a result, you will have access to the digital download of right. all of these songs. Right. So you're getting something for, for nothing, uh, and you're doing something uh, for good. Right. So what do we have in this uh, edition of the Supersonic well, Smash I don't know if this will pack. shock you, but it's going to be an all-we-are-the-world six-pack. Ooh. So every song in here is somehow related to the... Artists on display in the We Are the World um, documentary. Documentary, the, the song in general. Yeah, okay. watching the documentary may help you pick out there you go. Uh, the more of the featured people. But here it is. Let's run it one more time. And what do you what do you think? I got like two of them. Too hard. <laughs> too hard. Uh, yeah. No. No, too hard yeah. for me, but they all have been. So they're all era-appropriate. They're all people that were somehow involved. I'm not going to necessarily even say whether they were big players or little-time players, but they were all part of the We Are the World saga. Yep. So go uh, to the Facebook post that promotes the publication of this episode and enter in the comment. You'll see this uh, song here that you can play on loop, the Supersonic Smash-Up six-pack. Um, and even if you don't think you have it, guess, because if nobody gets it, Within 48 hours, then we randomly pick a commenter okay. who is going to win. So we put yep. all the names in the hat and we pick one out. But uh, So six songs, we need the artist and the song title. Of in each order. Six, yeah. Of each it, little nugget. No cheating. I don't know how you would cheat. But I don't know either. Can't. All right. Well, that brings us to another lightning round, shall we? All right. Lightning round it is. I am way off of the uh, topic for mine. How about you? Yes, okay, I good. am. So, uh, who should go first to take us off the map right well, away? Yeah, my float your boat is off the map. I'll hit you with that one. Okay. Um, I, may, uh, I may have gone too far. <laughs> mm, me too. <laughs> anyway, it's another song that I found on that uh, infamous Yacht Rock 100 compilation on Spotify that we kind of made fun of in the past. Um, so, I want to get your thoughts on this one. I don't even know if it was certified. I didn't, did not look it up. Um, but this is Jim Capaldi formerly of Traffic, Jim Capaldi from 1983, and the song is called That's Love. You walk out the door, head for the train, been in a while, you're back again, that's love. You never change the world. So it's mostly synths and drum machine. It's Stevie Winwood is producing, so it sounds like the same setup and rig he was using for the Taking Back the Night album, you know, Valerie at all. So uh, that's on a Yacht Rock playlist. Would you uh, like that one stricken from the record? Please. Yeah, I think so too. I like the song. I do too. I'd forgotten that I'd forgotten it. Yeah. 
Exactly. But it's not yacht. It's just kind of lighthearted soft rock. Yeah, but I bet that same list would include a lot of uh, Stevie Winwood and Traffic yeah. and stuff yeah. like that that you would hear, which I just know. I don't see it. But anyways. Yeah, it's all right song, though. Okay, well, I'm going to sort of do the same thing. I'm going off the map for Does It Float Your Boat because <laughs> I know this song is not yacht. But is it a buried treasure? I think it's a buried treasure. Okay. It's a song that I forgot that I had forgotten. This is the turducken of uh, Lightning Round. My question for you is going to be, have you seen it appear in any sort of mention, okay. a list? Because I'm surprised that people haven't tried to sneak one this on the boat. <laughs> I haven't seen it myself. It's too, um, what would you call it, AC, you know. Gold. Gold, yeah. yeah. Um, but it talks about sipping champagne on a yacht. <laughs> Have you ever heard anyone try to sneak this song on the boat? You got to remember this tune. It's uh, I've Never Been to Me by Charlene. Ooh, I've been to Georgia and California and anywhere I could run. Took the hand of a preacher man and we made love in the sun. But I ran out of places and friendly faces because... <laughs> yeah, that is the epicenter of adult contemporary. That, right there. Uh, yeah, I've not seen Swoony Strings. Yeah, that, that's like Carpenter's influenced yeah. stuff. I would not. I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. But posted. the fact that it's the Trojan horse lyric of sipping champagne on a yacht. Yeah, it's not just the yacht, but the sipping champagne gives you that upper crust <laughs> thing that totally well, fits. With do you. me a favor, you and dear listeners, keep your eye out for it. If yeah. you see it posted, tag me, and I'll. I'll I don't know, but I do... Hashtag coconut. Just let us know. because yeah. it, it, it deserves to be in the same place coconut deserves to be. I forgot and I'd forgotten about that one, yeah. though. Yeah. Okay. So, well, let me do uh, okay. something similar. Okay. In, uh, similar, as they say. Mm, you do. Uh, I'm kind of flying by the seat of my pants, but my idea was to go literally all over the map on this lightning round, and I'm going to do that. Because I'm not entirely sure this is Yacht Rock, but you mentioned Peebo Bryson. Yeah. And this buried treasure came to me. I was like, oh my God, I forgot and I forgot about that song. <laughs> and this one features Neil Steubenhaus on bass. Okay. Richard Marks on backing vocals. Oh. Paul Jackson Jr. on guitar. Mixed at Bill Schnee Studios. Okay. I give you, if ever you're in my arms again. If ever you're in my arms again. I didn't mention Carlos Vega on drums, but so you got Yachty personnel. It's 1984. It's starting to yeah. sound like late 1980s. Yeah, it is. It it's is certainly really a West yacht. Coast influenced ballad, but it is a ballad nonetheless, and it's kind of anthemic ballad. So it would definitely not be a yacht rock tune, but it's its sound is shaped by the yacht rock sound mm -hmm. for sure. But I had forgotten how much I like yeah, that song. That's and a good came, one. Yeah. I'd forgotten that one too. All right. What do you got for Buried Treasure? Well, Going back to one of our very, very, very early episodes, I laid down a marker where I talked about yacht jazz, hmm. right? Yes. And I made the point that it is not, I repeat, smooth not smooth jazz. And it has to, it, it should connect to yacht rock in some fashion. We talked about how it would be pre-drum machine. It would be recorded in a certain style that is reflective of yacht rock and also personnel 
overlap, right? Yep. So did you know that Michael McDonald wrote two songs for David Sanborn? Yes. You did? No. Okay. <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah, and they're both, uh, there may actually be more, um, but they were two co-writes, actually. And uh, they're from an album called Hideaway. I love that album. Yeah. Which two were they? Well, I'm getting there. Hold on. I'm scrolling because I want to make sure I get the name right. Tell me if this doesn't sound like it has some doobie bounce to it. This is track three off the album called Anything You Want. So there's another song on that album called uh, Again and Again, but this is the one right there. You could tell that definitely sounds like instrumental Michael McDonald. Yeah. Now that you know it, right? I had no idea, and I would have never been able to pick it out, nope. but now that you tell me, it's like I can't unhear it. Yep. It's all I hear is doing bones. Yep. Especially that section that you played. Ooh, okay, cool. Well, I guess you're going to take us officially off the map here. Yeah, I have a little bit of a, a conundrum. Okay. It's something that... You mentioned that uh, we just passed Good Friday. Well, this was something that came to me on Easter Sunday. I got up Easter Sunday morning, and uh, I was led to play the Chicago Hot Streets album, which happens to start with a song called Alive Again. So now you can see how that Mm -hmm. all connects. 1978, the song was written by James Pankow. Um, but this, to put it in historical perspective, this is the first album that they did after Terry Kath had died. Okay. So they're in this difficult position of the band having to go forward. Uh, they did bring on a different producer. So they brought in Phil Ramone to produce. So somebody that didn't have any of the past history or baggage of the band. Um, but of course all the focus was going to be on who's going to replace Terry Kath, specifically guitar playing. And they brought in a guy who was a very seasoned player, knew all their tunes and all that stuff, a guy named Donnie Dacus or Donnie Dacus. I'm never sure how to pronounce that. Mm. Um, And the very first song that was released by that album, I I think that this is a brilliant approach. They kind of faced the issue head on by putting out this song alive again. I'm feeling alive again, that the band has decided that they're going to resurrect themselves and not be deterred. And it was such a positive thing. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. But as I said, the hanging thing over the band was the guitar player. And now I got to play you this guitar solo and then we'll reflect on it. So with that in mind, they had to be aware of the attention that was going to be on the guitar. And this is their lead single. This song was... Then mm. That is such a nothing burger of a solo. It's a weak sound. It's a weak concept. You know, the, the weak solo from the player's perspective. It's kind of buried in the mix. I thought, man, it, it seems to lack self-awareness to say, this is going to be how we announce our new guitar player. Because that is just weak it's like a plastic kazoo through a wah-wah yeah it, uh 
Well, let's hope listener Donnie doesn't uh, agree. <laughs> <laughs> if we get any Donnie emails, yeah. yeah. But, but yeah, I, I agree with you. There's kind of not a lot to it, but... Mm. But there's other tracks on there where Donnie plays brilliant stuff. So it's not like he can't play. I mean, there's some great, almost yeah. yachty, jazzy stuff he does later. But it's almost more I go back to the producer. So maybe it's listener Phil we need to watch out for. Like, <laughs> yes. this is what you decided to go with? I'm like, geez, right. I don't know. It seems like it was failed before it started because of that solo. Yeah. The song is good. Yeah, the song, song is, is really good. Everything you'd want in a Chicago song. Everything you'd want. Horns are great. Melody, just solid, top to bottom. Other than that, all right. Well, that's a, that's a nice pick. Um, that is off the map, though. Chicago. Yeah, it's just something that's always kind of bugged me because it just seems. <laughs> well, you got to air your grievances. Yeah, there you that's, go. You're supposed to wait for festivus. Yeah, well, we Friday. can re-air this one because we don't have a Christmas episode planned. So there you, we we do have a festivus festivus one though. Oh, okay. In the works, I should say. All right. Well, let us get me out of this mess. I'm going to turn to uh, some viewer mail. This is listener Larry writes in to make a recommendation. Mm. Um, he concedes that maybe it's not Yachty, um, but it's a good band. He said, hey, here's another band to check out. I don't see them on either of your playlists. So they are time frame lurker. Uh, they are time frame appropriate okay i don't know if they're yachty or not but since uh the name of the band is australian crawl so sounds like we're going off the map there and he suggests that we listen to the song downhearted so let's give that a listen Now that I hear it, I think I may have heard that before. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I like the song. I do too. And it's uh, you know you know how much I like the pop from Australia of that era. That was that was a great era back then. But it's not yachty. It's a little strummy, little America yep. thing. But it's certainly a uh, West Coast vibey. Definitely for sure. So like thank it. you to listener Larry. Absolutely. And if uh, listener Larry, if you see listener Donnie uh, charging the podcast, uh, jump in the way <laughs> or right? Phil. Yeah, or listener <laughs> Phil. Both. Okay. Cool. Well, that's it. Anything else on uh, We Are the World? I have some things that I've. Uh, we're on the cutting room floor, as it were, but okay. nothing major. Let's, what made the cutting room floor? Uh, well, let's see. Um, I thought it was cool that uh, the they brought in someone from Ethiopia to address the musicians. They did. They did. Because um, they tried some Swahili stuff in there at one point. Well, she first she addressed the group. She had written a speech. It was yeah. heartwarming. And at first it was in whatever their native language is. It was Ethiopian. Yeah. Um, and then they say now in English. And then she translates it in English. The f- weird thing is at the end she's like, and ahoy poloi. Now, I'm not sure if that's Ethiopian or if it's English. It's the Ethiopian Shim Sham. <laughs> Born to do it. 